So what kind of society do we want in America and how do we get there? Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conversation. I'm David Schuster. So pleased to be joined today by Mary Frances Berry. She's a professor of American social thought and history and African-American studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of 10 books and also a former chair of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Dr. Berry, good of you to join us today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I want to ask you in terms of um, this, the, the Justice Department has a position in terms of the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights that has not been held by a woman for some 64 years. It's never been held by an African-American woman. How important is the nomination now that's been put forward by Joe Biden of Kristen Clark, African-American woman who served in the New York Attorney General's office? Well, I think it's uh, really uh, fantastic that after all these years, because the Civil Rights Division was set up in 1957 in the Eisenhower administration to have uh, for the first time a woman uh, and uh, as a black woman uh, to head it. We had two black men, uh, a professor from, uh, from Yale, Drew Days, and then uh, one during the, uh, the, uh, Carter, or the Clinton administration who, uh, Patrick, who became the governor of Massachusetts, but there has been a woman. And Kristen Clark is superbly qualified for the position, which is really important. I mean, obviously, uh, that it's great to have diversity and all that and have different people and so on, but we have to make sure that there are people who can really carry the burden and do the job in a way that helps the people who need to be helped. And the Civil Rights Division is one of the most important functions in the Justice Department. I'm going to ask you specifically about Kristen Clark in a moment, but explain why. Why is this position in the Justice Department in terms of being in charge of civil rights so significant and important? Well, voting rights uh, under the civil rights laws, if there is a complaint that people's right to vote is being interfered with uh, and uh, that the justice, the civil rights division in the Justice Department is supposed to investigate and, if necessary, litigate and protect the right to vote. If there is a problem with police brutality, which we seem to have uh, in this country, uh, shooting unarmed people or whatever the complaint uh, is, uh, they have the power and the responsibility to investigate uh, any kind of violation of law that involves the federal government in any way. Uh, and most of these law enforcement things do. Or the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is enforced in other agencies. But when it comes to going to court, when you have to litigate the cases in the federal courts, the Civil Rights Division is the place that takes the lead on all this. And the Republicans have done a pretty effective job in terms of terminating some nominations in the past. Lonnie Guineer, who was nominated by Bill Clinton, Republicans depicted her as a welfare queen, rejected her confirmation. Bill Lan Lee, who was said to be... Um, well, that his, uh, he was too, too, too much in favor, apparently, of affordable, uh, uh, affirmative action. Why is it that over the years, Republicans have taken aim at this particular position? And, and what do you make of the buzz of opposition that they're putting up now to Kristen Clark? Well, if you are in a position or suggested for a position that has power, authority, and a reputation of really making change, there are always people who don't want to change. They would prefer to have somebody who either agrees with them <laughs> that the change you make 
want to make is wrong or finds reasons to interpret the law in a way that you can't get it done, which is what happened to us famously during the Reagan administration and other administrations in which you had civil rights people running the civil rights division who had never had any experience with civil rights at all. All they knew is that they didn't, whatever they heard about civil rights, they didn't like it. So now when you propose somebody who has experience, who knows what the laws are and how they should be uh, enforced, then people who don't want to go along with the change, obviously they target the people. And when you're in the limelight, of course, you make a good target. Well, one of the one of the targets Republicans have tried to sort of pick off with uh, Kristen Clark is that she has said in the past that perhaps there should be resources reallocated away from policing, per se, and more towards mental health issues. Uh, she has largely sort of stood by that, saying she doesn't support defunding the police, but that we need to do a better job in society of trying to prevent these things on the front end in terms of mental health. Um, is is that a reasonable position in your estimation? Well, that that is a reasonable position, and it is a quite moderate position in a sense. There are people who want to defund the police altogether, which I think is ridiculous. Uh, there are places, Los Angeles, for example, and other cities where they have, in fact, done something about uh, reallocating resources into areas where it would help the police. Most police uh, departments, I know from all the hearings I did at the Civil Rights Commission and the research I've done where I subpoenaed police and had them testify on their own, they don't know much about handling people who have mental health problems uh, when they're trying, when they encounter them or what to do or whatever, and all kinds of things can go wrong. They know that social services would help them to do their jobs better. I've heard that from police. And so when you say shift resources in a way that will help people and help the police officers do their job better, I mean, that's quite a, actually, it's a conservative position in my opinion. Some Republicans have also attacked Kristen Clark because when she was at Harvard in charge, in charge of the Black Student Association, she was 19 years old. She invited a professor from Wellesley who gave a speech ostensibly about racism and then spoke out largely about uh, and essentially seemed to defend anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, Kristen Clark has now apologized, um, and she's apologized years ago for this, but is that still fair game for a, for a, for a nomination? Uh, it's not fair game. One of the things you do in colleges and universities or what you're supposed to do is listen to all kinds of different opinions and let people listen. They let the students listen, let everybody, you know, talk about issues. And that is the way you learn. You may reject a large part of what you hear, but you don't just pretend that it's not out there in the air and people aren't discussing it. Let people come and make uh, their case. And I believe in open forums, and I don't see anything that's reprehensible about that. But to the extent that someone thinks that that means that she's anti-Semitic, there are all kinds of legal issues that she's been involved in where she supported and defended against anti-Semitism. And I certainly wouldn't uh, make a black bark, uh, so to speak, against her for what she did when she was 19 and she was school and they invited a speaker. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody would want to go back and look at the, what you and I were doing back at the <laughs> University of Michigan in Ann Arbor around April 15th <laughs> each year because of special laws that they had about marijuana. But in any case, let's move on. I want to talk about the sort of race relations in general. I get the sense in terms of all the attention that the Derek Chauvin trial has generated in terms of the death of George Floyd and whether Derek Chauvin is going to be found guilty or not, that maybe, just maybe, we're at an inflection point in terms of race relations and justice, uh, just in terms of how we're talking about it. Do you see it that way? Well, we are talking about it, 
more and in a different way. Part of it was the Black Lives Matter protests and part of it was the graphic presentation that we saw of, uh, of uh, George Floyd being killed with a knee on the neck and that comes after so many other things of this uh, kind. But whether or not there's been a real change, we're going to find out. As I watch the trial and comment on it and look at both sides, uh, it seems to me that if he is acquitted, it means that things haven't changed very much. I mean, policing has most uh, progressive police people in departments are in the business of de-escalating when things happen. They don't want to escalate anything and have to get out. That's old-fashioned policing. Uh, we're big guys, and you have to do what we say. Uh, you know that is not the way that people do it anymore. But there are still some uh, who, uh, and I saw one testifying the other day in the case for the defense, who think that by God, what I say as a police officer goes. Uh, no, we don't want that. And we'll see what happens in this trial. If he ends up getting acquitted, it means that no matter how George Floyd died, and we all saw it with our eyes on it, that things haven't changed as much as we'd like. Related to what's been going on in Minneapolis, there was the killing of uh, Dante Wright by a woman police officer who says that she mistook her taser for that she was meant to fire her taser and instead fired her gun, uh, killing Dante Wright. There have been uh, several nights of protests. What do you make of that case? Well, the woman is supposed to have been a police officer for 26 years. That's a long time to have experience. It would be like me being a professor for all these years and then saying that I didn't realize that I had to have a lectern up there if I was going to lecture and I didn't know what that was. And so I picked up the uh, container that the mail uh, people had left in there for their mail instead or something. Uh, it just, you know, strains uh, credulity, if I may put it that way, to think that's the case. And if so, it's sad. And they really need better training, even though they've spent millions of dollars in Minnesota on training since the George uh, Floyd uh, murder. So I really am quite sorry that it happened. And I really am having difficulty understanding how and why it happened. I think so many people uh, share your uh, difficulty in trying to understand this. Uh, in general, though, Dr. Bear, are you, are you optimistic about where we're going now in terms of justice and race relations in the United States? Or do you have fears like so many, so, so many others do? I have fears. Uh, well, one, because the, our new president, which many black people and people of goodwill and progressives voted for, Joe Biden, he has not come around yet to understand the extent to which police reform should go. Maybe these events will somehow open his eyes, but we need to have a really clear-eyed look at how we change these things. And um, uh, there's a lot going on in the country around race and discrimination and diversity that is very positive, but much more needs to be done. Dr. Mary Frances Berry, she's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Berry, good of you to join us today. So interesting to talk with you, and thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Okay, thanks you for having me. Thank you. Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm David Schuster. So many of us, of course, are paying very close attention to 2020, the impact of the coronavirus epidemic and how it's impacted our society in so many different ways. There are some astounding numbers that are coming in terms of uh, gun violence in 2020. And here to talk about that is Abene Clayton. She is a reporter with The Guardian Guns and Lies in America Project. Uh, Abene, thanks for doing this. Happy to 
here. Thank you for having me. So I read that it's something like four to 5,000 more gun deaths in 2020 compared to 2019. Is that about right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say those numbers are probably on the conservative end. But um, yeah, it's certainly been a really uh, troubling increase in cities across the nation. And a lot of people may be surprised when they hear this, because if you look at the calendar year 2020, there weren't any mass shootings. Uh, so how do you explain or, or how do people try to explain why the surge in gun violence during the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I always like to um, remind people of is there weren't any high profile mass shootings. There were a number of mass shootings, several situations where multiple people within one or two city blocks or even in the same setting were shot. Maybe not all killed, but there was certainly mass injury and mass casualty events. And I think in so many um, American minds, gun violence is only the the Sandy Hooks and the Parklands of the world. But for folks like myself who pay attention to uh, what we call community every day, all of these different kind of qualifying terms for the gun violence that I'm referring to, there was an increase beginning in, um, for some cities, immediately when those lockdowns happened. A lot of people count March 16th as the beginning of the pandemic year. And from there on, we just saw numbers begin to tick up consistently and they have not stopped. You know, there are cities that have been making amazing progress in reducing gun violence. It's a lot of that um, work disrupted and these shootings just uh, exploded. And some of the cities where the numbers went way up, uh, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Oakland, again, these are concentrated communities of color. Uh, what do you make of it? I think that it really speaks to um, what we talk about when the pandemic was affecting mostly black and brown communities, you know, talking about these comorbidities and how there were these issues and gaps in structures and there was um, institutional racism that made COVID-19 have the effect that we saw it have on communities of color. Those same things were at play when we talk about gun violence, you know, people were in desperate situations. There were losses of in-person interactions that made gun violence prevention work so successful in these communities that were already struggling with things like housing insecurity, living in food deserts, access to healthy um, foods, clean air, et cetera. All of those things contribute to gun violence just like they contributed to the disparities that we saw with COVID-19. So the fact that it was concentrated in these communities does not surprise me at all. It's incredibly disheartening, but again, not surprising. And when you talk about prevention work, um, you're talking about social workers and people who may be helping people in difficult situations to begin with, whether it's domestic issues with their family or difficulty paying the rent or work. And that lack of communication, which essentially got cut off at the beginning of the pandemic, may help explain how people essentially then didn't have uh, outlets for help and resources. Absolutely. And in addition to social workers, the people I'm usually referring to are violence interrupters. These are skilled, trained people, usually formally incarcerated for gun crimes, and people who were either shooters or were shot in their younger years who then come out of prison and do the training and do the work to become influencers in their own communities and reach out to the very small population, usually less than 2% of a city's population that's responsible for the most gun violence. And these groups and these models, uh, places like Advanced Peace come to mind, Cure Violence models, there are so many groups 
who um, hold healing circles, who rely on in-person communication to build trust and relationships with the people who are deemed to be the most violent by a um, law enforcement body. And all of that was disrupted, you know, and some violence interrupters would even show up to schools in the wake of a community shooting to defuse anything, would be able to show up to hospitals in the aftermath and in communities. And that just became incredibly unsafe for them. And a lot of these groups are so under-resourced that someone getting COVID could be utterly devastating for their infrastructure. So they have to protect themselves as well as the people that they came around. And with the restrictions, those in-person interactions and the loss of school, community centers, it just goes on. It was disrupted and dismantled by the pandemic and people lost those essential relationships. Given the, uh, the, the recent shootings in Atlanta and, and elsewhere, the Biden administration is now suggesting that perhaps there's some efforts to be made about uh, banning uh, assault weapons uh, and sort of large guns like that. Would that really make a difference, though, in terms of these cities that are facing some of this uh, epic gun violence? I think it would make um, very little difference. I never like to dismiss the importance of some, you know, common sense things like universal background checks, perhaps having a, a registry, strengthening research, things like that are great. But in terms of a, an assault weapons ban, I don't think it would do much to address the what I call like the true burden of gun violence, which number one is suicides, the vast majority, suicides, white men in rural places, and um, the rest are community gun violence issues, which aren't really something you can legislate your way out of. You have to invest in the programs that I'm talking about and train um, violence interrupters to address these things. And I don't know that an assault weapons ban is going to do that. And if it does somehow pass as though it seems to be in a perpetual stalemate, I just worry that people will see an assault weapons ban passed, universal background checks passed, and then be like, oh, we figured out gun violence and we solved it. When in reality, there are so many communities that are struggling and are traumatized by the true burden of gun violence, which happens on our, our city streets. It also sounds like, I mean, look, there are more than there are more guns now than people in the United States. And maybe we've reached the point of no return where it's going to be impossible to try to change that. And it sounds like a lot of people are saying, well, maybe if we do just sort of acknowledge, OK, there are all these weapons, but is there a way we can invest instead of buying gun buybacks or or mm -hmm. banning weapons? As you say, adding more resources to the people who might be able to stop people from the violence to begin with. One hundred percent. I think we've tried a number of things, um, usually involving the criminal justice system or some other large carceral force coming into communities to address violence. But just now, are we seeing at a federal level them address the fact that most shootings and most gun violence are not these high profile mass shootings? You know, they are local incidents. And the investment he has proposed, um, that this $5 billion investment, into community-based gun violence prevention. And the infrastructure bill has acknowledged it a number of times, which is quite unprecedented for a president to talk about um, street-level gun violence. But I just hope that the, um, the desire and the reflexive need to call for universal background checks doesn't um, obscure any of the efforts that cities have been trying to make and any of the progress and the kind of time-tested approaches to gun violence prevention that have been working for decades. 
Abhinay, you've been uh, digging pretty deeply into uh, gun violence in America as a reporter with The Guardian and the Guns and Lies uh, in America project. Um, in terms of all the data and the reporting that you've done, what's been the biggest surprise to you uh, as you've been pursuing this story? So for me, I think the biggest surprise hasn't necessarily come from data. It's come from anecdotal conversations that I'm having with violence prevention folks who talk about seeing younger and younger kids involved in gunplay. I just spoke to someone who said that the the profile of a shooter, as they like to call it, the people that they reach out to, has expanded to include people as young as 14 years old. And that is incredibly disheartening to hear because it really speaks to the impact of losing schools and losing these physical places where young people can get together. Um, in terms of statistics, I think that the amount of guns being bought is always something that is going to be shocking to see. When you see it's up 40% in the Black community, there's a stat that is running that the um, that's, there's been a 58% increase in gun, in gun buying among Black Americans, with Black women kind of leading that number. So there are a couple that... Um, kind of give me pause, but mostly it's the anecdotes from people who have lost someone to gun violence during the pandemic. And they talk about how an already horrific situation is made that much worse by the restrictions on funerals and even on coroner's offices that just make the grieving process that much more impossible because we're still in the time of COVID-19. And those are the things that really um, are impactful for me to hear. And as we are in this sort of lockdown continuing to a certain extent, and of course, as you mentioned, the age of the, the profile of the shooter tends to get younger and younger. Have there been any particular changes that have had an impact that have worked in trying to stop the gun violence or trying to stop and reach people who are, say, 14, 13 years old? Well, I think having the violence interrupters going into schools was really one of the the best ways to go about that. If there's one place where you can reach young people is there, you know, besides having relationships with their parents and things of that nature. So I think that this, um, it's called like focus deterrence, where you go at the people who are most at risk, most at risk of being shot or perhaps perpetuating, um, perpetrating, excuse me, a gun crime, and you really uh, wrap your arms around those people. And as they get younger, the necessity to be in places like schools, community centers, even to talk to juvenile probation just becomes that much more um real, you know, violence interrupters showing up at children's homes and things of that nature is, is really a necessity and something that's been proven to work with um, people who are in that kind of 19 to 29 year old age range that are usually most at risk. Just, you know, putting that same model on the younger folks is something that I think is going to be quite necessary to rebound after what's been a really difficult year. Abinay Clayton, you've been doing some really terrific work for The Guardian. The project is the Guns and Lies in America project for The Guardian. Abinay, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us here on The Conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah.